Let's turn our attention to God's Word. This morning we're going to be reading again from this uh, very familiar passage that we've been talking about. One of the most dramatic and I think uh, uh, most interesting passages in all of the Bible. And that's this narrative of these two prophets, Elijah and Elisha. And uh, this morning we're going to start reading in verse 19, and so now hear God's Word. It's printed in your bulletin, by the way, if you don't have the Scriptures with you. It's always good to follow along, and so uh, now hear the Word of God, starting in verse 19 of chapter 2, 2 Kings. Now the men of the city said to Elisha, Behold, the situation of this city is pleasant, as my Lord sees. But the water is bad and the land is unfruitful. Elisha said, bring me a new bowl and put salt in it. So they brought it to him. Then he went to the spring of water and threw the salt in it and said, Thus says the Lord, I have healed this water from now on. Neither death nor miscarriage shall come from it. So the water has been healed to this day according to the word of that Elisha spoke. He went up from there to Bethel. And while he was going on the way, some small boys came out of the city and jeered at him, saying, Go up, you bald head. Go up, you bald head. And he turned around, and when he saw them, he cursed them in the name of the Lord. And two she-bears came out of the woods and tore Forty-two of the boys. From there he went on to Mount Carmel, and from there he returned to Samaria. This is the word of the Lord. Wow. (laughs) And you all are really sitting here wondering, how is Chuck going to pull this off today? I am going to dazzle you. I'm going to amaze you. You're going to leave today in utter and complete speechless silence. Because this is a troubling scripture. Dear me. So what have we been looking at? Look, these narratives are not just historical information. They had a message. And that message was designed to have a very distinct impact on the people who heard these stories. And then, jumping ahead several thousand years, they are also to have a meaning to us. But let me warn you, when you're reading the Old Testament, you can't go just from immediately a story like this and jump ahead. Otherwise, we'd be out there calling bears out of the forest to come down and devour our enemies. That's not the point of the story. That's not really the point of any of these narratives is for you to take them and just grab them and pull them without any filter into your present life. They have to pass through what we call or what Dr. Pratt used to call historical contingencies and and, and filters. And the great filter that they pass through before they ever reach you and I here in the 21st century is Jesus Christ Himself. And so let's look at this passage, and and let me just remind you that we're looking at the Gospel of Elisha, 
What is that gospel? What is he saying to his people back then that we are to then take and put into our lives today? The, the first week, our first part of this series, when Elijah passed off his ministry to uh, Elisha, we learned that God was saying there is hope. He told Elijah, the prophet before Elisha, Leave the cave. You remember he was in a cave. He was very despondent because the kingdom had not come the way he thought it should come. The kingdom hadn't arrived. And God told Elijah, go back. There's a future. It doesn't end with you. It's not going to happen like you think. It's going to happen. And we today need to be reminded that it's not going to happen like that. The disciples had to come to grips with that after Jesus rose from the dead that it wasn't going to happen the way they thought. And so we need to have hope. He says, go back. Find a a successor. And he does. He goes back and he finds Elisha and he throws his cloak on him. And we we learn that we're supposed to invest in this world. We're not to just check out and go hide We're to invest deeply in people's lives. why we come to church. We come to church so that we can be with others who we need so that we can invest in one another's lives. And we are to sacrifice. Elisha, Elijah's successor, was required to give up everything. And he did it. He took the 12 yoke of oxen. That would have been, what, 24 oxen? That's, that would have been a rich man in those days. He took them and he sacrificed them. He took the plows, put those on the altar, and then he followed Elijah. Elijah. And then last week we looked at this amazing narrative, very familiar, where Elijah is caught up in the chariots and the army of God appears and carries him away. He goes into heaven. He doesn't die one of the two people in Scripture we know that, doesn't, that don't die. They go up. And we find that Elisha has to be tenacious in following because Elijah keeps telling him, stay here, stay here. And he says, no, I won't leave you. I will not leave you. I'm staying. And folks, there are lots and lots of opportunities to leave the Christian faith. Lots of reasons to say, gosh, I just don't understand. I don't know what's going on. God betrayed me. God's left me. God doesn't care about me. The church doesn't care about me. We could go on and on and on, find lots of reasons not to stay. And this gospel, according to Elisha, is saying, stay, stick with it. Don't give up. Not because of just your strength of will, your dint of will, but because God is faithful. And then we saw Elisha's audacity. Elijah says, what do you want from me? He says, I want a double portion. And wow, what are our expectations? What are your expectations in your life, my life? What are they? And finally, clarity. You see, once a commitment is made, once Elisha committed, the other prophets, these are... These are his, his people, his tribe. And the other prophets start to question him and push against his authority. And Elisha shows this amazing combination of both 
boldness and yet at the same time incredible meekness. So these are the paradoxes, what I've been telling you, the paradoxes that we live in. We live in a paradox. It's like an enigma. It's like a puzzle. Everything's not black and white. You know that, right? The world is not black and white. I used to think the world was gray. But it's not really even gray. The world is technicolor. There's millions of shades and, and, and colors. And we're to look at that world that way, even though we live in kind of a paradox. We want to make everything black and white. It's not. And so the paradox this morning that we're going to look at is the paradox of redemption. That's what these, this story, uh, what I think is taking us to. What does it mean to live in this world, a world that's definitely broken, definitely a mess? No question about that. How do we do it? Three things. Here's your outline and we'll get going and we'll get through these. Hopefully, it, with, with a a degree of clarity and, and, a, and a degree of hope for you and for me. First of all, this story, these several stories here, are about anticipating the kingdom of God, about anticipating the kingdom. Secondly, about defending the kingdom. And thirdly, about advancing the kingdom. So let's look at anticipating the kingdom. That's this part about redeeming the creation, reversing the curse that was on the waters of Jericho. Look at verses 19 through 22. The situation of the city, Elisha, the new prophet, the new head prophet, the spokesman of God Almighty, enters into Jericho, and the elders of the city come to him and they say, Look, the city's great. It's a pleasant place, a good place. But the water is bad and the land is unfruitful. We cannot uh, raise crops. And in fact, uh, from the implication is that even people were miscarrying their children because the water was so bad and poisoned them. Let me give you the context and we're going to look at the miracle very quickly. Listen, listen. This is what those people would have heard that were listening to this story. They would have remembered that Joshua, when he entered the land, remember they crossed the river Jordan, same place Elijah crossed going that way, same place Elisha crossed coming back. They crossed the same place, they went into the same city, and everybody in their hearing would have thought of this. From Joshua chapter 6, when the walls fell down of Jericho, remember they blew the trumpets and the walls fell down, and that was the first great city during the conquest under Joshua after Moses and the exodus from Egypt. You all remember the story. And Joshua laid an oath on the city. He said, Cursed before the Lord be the man who rises up and rebuilds Jericho. At the cost, listen, at the cost of his firstborn shall he lay its foundation. And at the cost of his youngest son, he will set up its gates. This was the curse that Joshua laid on Jericho, this horribly pagan city that was under the wrath of God. The harem. 
In other words, everybody dies. Everything dies. Every living thing, man, woman, child, they are all to be sacrificed for me, God said. My wrath is being poured out. Now that should, make, that should shiver your timbers, to use pirate language. Wow, this city is so evil that God just brings the wrath of God on, him, on them. But he does spare Rahab and the prostitute and all her family. That's a whole other sermon. What's going on here? What is this context? People would have heard, wow, I remember that curse and here it is. The water's bad. The land's unfruitful. People are miscarrying when they drink the water. And the context is this. From 1 Kings, it's just a couple pages to the left. If you're reading in your English Bible, in the Hebrew Bible, it's couple pages to the right. Okay, that was funny. Never mind. All right. Look at the context. This is the description of the king of Israel right then and there while Elisha was doing his ministry. Listen, Ahab was king. You remember how bad this guy was? He was the worst of the worst of all this line of kings. Ahab did evil in the sight of the Lord, listen, more than anyone who was before him. And if it would, even if it was a light thing to do all this evil, he went even further. He took Jezebel, the daughter of Ethbaal, king of the Sidonians. She was the princess of Sidon, and she was the high priestess of the temple of Baal. This was a woman utterly committed to Baal. The princess of the Sidonians and the high priestess of the worship of Baal. In fact, her father's name was Baal, worshiper of Baal. And Ahab builds him a house, erects him an altar, it says. This is in 1 Kings 16. Ahab, listen, Ahab did more to provoke the Lord to anger than all the kings before him. Wow! In his days, in Ahab's days, I'm continuing with the passage, listen. And this would have been Ahab, Jezebel, and the one I'm going to mention right now. In his days, Ahab and Jezebel, Heel of Bethel built Jericho. In the face of the curse... This man, this compatriot of Ahab and Jezebel, probably a wealthy entrepreneurial guy uh, who builds uh, big hotels in New York that are gold encrusted with gold, probably like him. Not saying anything bad about him. I'm just saying that's his... Okay. Probably like that though. Rebuilds. This is a wealthy man who rebuilds Jericho. And listen to what it says. He laid the foundation of the city at the cost of his firstborn, Abiram. And he set up its gates at the cost of his youngest son, Sigub, according to the word of the Lord. Now, we don't know exactly what that means other than this. That these two boys, first son, last son, died because of their father's greed.
greed and disregard for God's word. We don't know if they died of natural causes or we don't know if Heel of Bethel took those two sons and sacrificed them to Baal as was their custom to take their babies and put them in the arms of a blazing white hot idol made out of metal and let them be burned alive. This is the world, folks. You think we have it bad in the 21st century? We, this is paradise on earth. This was a bad, evil world and Elisha was in the big fat middle of it. And here he comes into the city and the water is poisoned and it's, it's under the curse of God going back to Joshua. And even though Ahab and Jezebel and Heel all tried to rebuild the city, it still wasn't okay. The water was still poisoned. The land would not produce, even though it was a pleasant, by all accounts, a wonderful place. Those of you that have traveled to the Middle East, maybe on a tour of some kind, you know Jericho's a beautiful place now. Fruit trees, and I mean, they have turned it into a paradise. Grapevines, olive trees. Jericho to this day has been healed. Because a prophet crossed the river, the exodus, he split the river, he moved into the city, he went into Jericho, and he, by his word, announced to everyone the same thing Jesus said a millennia and a half later, or a a thousand years later, the kingdom has come. Thus says the Lord, the water is healed. I'm reversing the curse. The miracle, the miracle of the reversal of the curse is a notification to all. Listen. That the kingdom of God has come. And that now the land would be healed. Dr. Ray Dillard in his commentary. um, Dr. Dillard is dead now sadly. But this man is an amazing Old Testament scholar. Listen to what he says about this. (laughs) I love it. Miracles are redemptive. Did you hear that? Miracles are redemptive. They restore to pristine condition and rectify that which is wrong. And because they restore, miracles, listen, miracles point toward a future and anticipate the new heavens and the new earth. Folks, there are only five... We think the Bible is full of miracles. Look. There are only five very brief, very brief places in Scripture where miracles occur. One of them is the Exodus with uh, Moses and his staff and doing all that stuff, all these curses that came on Egypt. That's one of them. And another second time is this occasion between Elisha and and Elijah. Another one is uh, the case of Daniel and, and some of the things that happened with Daniel when they were in the exile. And then the fourth one is when Jesus came 
and did his miraculous works. And it was only for a brief time, only for a few years. And then for a very brief time, after the apostles took on the mantle of Christ, they did miracles for a while. But slowly, those miracles disappeared. Now today, we want everything to be a miracle. If you go to the hospital and you have a baby, what do you hear on Facebook everybody saying? What is it? It's a miracle! It's a miracle! No, it's not. It's just a baby. It's just a birth. Oh, I've been praying for this job. I've been praying for this job and I got this job. It's a miracle! No, it's not. You just got a job. Well, I went to the doctor and they said I had this dread disease and then now I took medicine and I'm well. Or, or no, I went to, even better, I went to church and Chuck anointed me with oil like we did a few weeks ago. Remember that? And you were healed. It was a miracle. No, it's not. Now, I know that kind of may bother some of you, but look, miracles by definition are rare. They happen very little. And when it's a miracle, it is a, there's no question. This is, wow, this is miraculous. This would not have happened otherwise. And if you make everything a miracle, what does it do? It, it brings it down to where nothing's a miracle. But the miracles in the Bible were, as Dr. Dillard says, redemptive. They had a purpose. Miracles, in fact, they are called that... In the New Testament, they are called simion or signs. What do signs do? Signs point. They're not the thing in and of themselves. And it's so easy for us to get caught up in miracles and want to live everything by miracles. And you're going to be sorely disappointed. Miracles point. And when Elisha went and took a bowl of salt, what's up with that? A bowl of salt. Salt doesn't purify water. Have you ever tried that? He took the very thing that, was, that would have probably been the thing that was polluting that water and he used that thing to heal. Kind of like the deaf kind of like the death of someone is used to destroy death. Kind of like that. You see, every eye, listen, every eye that was opened, every ear that could hear, every leper that was cleansed, every dead person that was raised, Every wedding glass that was filled with the best wine was pointing. Pointing. Jesus was not doing miracles just to dazzle people. In fact, it did very little to convince anyone. They saw the miracles. They saw Lazarus step out of the grave after he'd been dead four days. And the very next thing out of their mouth was, what shall we do about this? And the answer they came up with universally and uniformly among the religious leaders, he raised somebody from the dead. We have got to kill him. We can't let this man live. He's raising the dead. 
in the face of a bald face miracle. And it did nothing but provoke them to hatred. Amazing. Miracles are signs. They point to redemption. They point to restoration. And that brings us to the second point. Defending the kingdom. These mocking youths. You see, he went up to Bethel and this group of small boys, we don't know how old they were. There's a lot of debate about whether they were really little kids or if they were uh, maybe teenagers. We don't really know. The word is, is kind of ambiguous. So, They were jeering. They were mocking. What is mocking? I almost don't have to tell you what mocking is because we all do it. We are all so good at it. God has crushed me this week because of my mocking, my scoffing, my jeering personally. I'm confessing to you. Jesus, uh, James and, and, and his apostle and, and the apostle said, Confess to one another that you may be healed. This is a sin, folks, that we do. I do it. We ridicule. We're boastful in our ridicule of people. We're arrogant, prideful, and demeaning. And in so doing, mocking is uniformly condemned in Scripture. Scoffing, jeering. It is one of the worst things you can do. Read the Proverbs over and over. It, it, it talks in the most indelicate terms about a mocker and a scoffer. How foolish that is. So what is the context? What's going on here? The context is this mockery at Bethel. Very quickly, again, if you were in that world, you would have understood it. You see, we're, we're far removed, so we don't really get it. But Bethel, Bethel was the home of the aforementioned Hiel, who had built Jericho this entrepreneurial guy who rebuilt the city. And in Bethel, some of you may know, some of you may not know, was a golden calf. The other golden calf was in Dan. It was in the, the part of Israel far to the north. So in, in Bethel, which was far to the south, almost to Jerusalem, it was just north of Jerusalem, in the furthest southern reach of Israel was one calf, And in Dan was another calf. These are the two calves that Jeroboam, who was uh, responsible, Jeroboam and Rehoboam. Sorry for all these names, folks. I apologize. But Rehoboam was the son of Solomon. Jeroboam was the rebel that caused the split. And so the, 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 the land, the nation of, of Israel was in two parts now, Judah in the south and Israel in the north. And in order to keep the people of God Away from Jerusalem, away from the temple, Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, had a brilliant idea. Brilliant. I know what we'll do. We'll make two golden calves like we had in the wilderness. Remember how great that worked out? That was really good. This is Jeroboam, right? He's brilliant. We'll make two. One was not good enough. We need two. So he makes two. And he puts one in the south and one in the north so that there's one in uh, El Paso and one in New York City. California doesn't matter. It's going to drop in the ocean. So you get the idea. The, the extremities of the border, calf there, calf there. So we, that way people will come to this place to worship. We don't want them going to Jerusalem because you know it's over there. Yikes. The Temple of Solomon. God himself is over there. Mockery. 
mockery. They were mocking God. Oh, we'll make gold calves and we'll call them God. Mocking God. And then here comes God's prophet. They knew He was the prophet. They knew who He was. And they call Him bald head, bald head, whatever that means. Whatever it means, it was not just a lack of hair. In the Scripture, the head is what? It is our glory. The glory of a human being is on their head. Their feet, that's another matter. That's not the best place. That's the shameful place. You cover your feet because it's an expression of the lowest part of your humanity. But the highest part of your humanity, are you following me? Highest part of your humanity, head. Lowest part of your humanity, feet. Okay? Isn't this great? Are you liking this so far? No? Nobody's asleep yet? Good. All right, let me finish. They're mocking him. Again, Dr. Dillard, the scriptures depict mocking almost uniformly as the action of the ungodly. In mocking, listen, we ridicule those who have been made in the image of God. God forgive us. And therefore, we ridicule God who made them. By ridiculing the image of God, we ridicule God Himself who made people in their image. And think of what we do. for The, the racial slurs that we are guilty of using, all of us. The slander that we will throw out against people. The words that we use. The ridicule, making fun of people. The belittling of someone. Well, let's look at the miracle. That's the context. What about the miracle? He turned and he cursed them in the name of the Lord. Now, this is a troubling passage. There's just no other way around it. I don't have a good answer for you other than this. Let me give it to you, and and I hope it will help you. Miracles are signs. The curse was a sign. This jeering and the tearing and the mauling by these bears, God cursed them. What's behind it? Everybody that would read this back in those days would have understood that ferocious beasts were symbols. They were signs of things. How many of you have read these these very uh, enigmatic passages in Scripture where you see these beasts with the head of a lion and the wings of an eagle and the feet and the this and that. Those were common images in the ancient Near East. And they represented nations. They represented their ferocity. Their ability to tear and shred. And so you see these images of lions and leopards and bears. In fact, Nebuchadnezzar was called the bear. He was going to come from the north and he was going to tear and shred the people of God. This was a sign warning the people, look, there are beasts out there, lions and tigers and bears. Oh my! Lions and tigers and bears. Oh my! You don't get the Hollywood reference. All right. (laughs) They're ferocious beasts out there. They're going to come and tear us apart. Elisha's showing them by a sign saying, look, You don't curse God. You don't mock God. The Apostle Paul said, God will not be mocked. 
Vengeance is mine, says the Lord. I will repay. We can't mock God. We can't tell God what the world is. He tells us. What we do is bow down and say, Yes, Lord, we agree and we will do everything to conform our lives to You. To follow God means that. It means that there will be assaults, mockeries, scorn, scoffing will come. But God says, I will take vengeance. Therefore, you are free to bless and forgive your enemies. Right? Remember now, we're jumping ahead, going through the filter of the New Testament. The New Testament says, we don't take vengeance, God takes vengeance. We're free. Free to love. Free to invest in people's lives. Free to proclaim the kingdom without having to resort to destroying our enemies. What did Jesus say to do for your enemies? What? Pray for your enemies. Bless those that curse you. So finally, let's look at the advancing of the kingdom. Look at verses 21, 23, 25. The, the phrase is repeated. And when you see phrases repeated, folks, you should, if you write in your Bible, some people don't. But if you do, take a pencil and kind of write, you know, track stuff like that. It's repeated. He went to the spring. He went to Bethel. He went to Mount Carmel. This is very interesting. Don't have time to talk about that. Then he returned to Samaria. He made a circuit. This prophet who from the time he received the mantle of God, from the day that Elijah dropped that mantle down and Elisha took it, rolled it up, slapped the water and said, where's the God of Elijah? And walked across. From that day he was in a battle, in a war. Even from his own people at times. And the temptation, folks, is for us to hunker down to play it safe, and I'm sorry to say that the evangelical, the American evangelical church, the church that we belong to, is going to be judged by God for the fact that we live in tremulous fear of everything. And if that's a description of you, it's a description of me, I'm afraid. We have got to get our courage back as the people of God. Amen? We've got to recover the courage to stand up to unrighteousness, injustice, racism, social injustice, everywhere we see it, even and especially when it's in our own house. And if we don't start doing it, We need to stay hunkered down and pray that the rocks fall on us. Because judgment starts where? Where does it start? Starts in the household of God. There's a temptation to hunker down. But Elisha didn't. He went. And everybody in your Bible, everyone you've ever read about, everybody you've ever heard, they go, they go, they go. Nobody hunkers down. We're looking, the writer of Hebrews said, we are on a pilgrimage. We are looking for a city whose builder and architect is God. We 
desire that better country, the heavenly one. From, for here we have no lasting city, but we seek the city that is to come. In other words, we're not looking to escape the world. We're looking for the city that is coming. Have you read Revelation 21? Have you read Revelation 22? God is coming here. We are not going there. If you die before Jesus returns, you will immediately be in God's presence in heaven. You with me? Immediately. The moment you close your eyes in death, the angels will gather you up and usher you into God's presence. And there... In His presence, in the heavenly realm up there, you will begin the process of groaning. What are you groaning for? What does the Bible say you're groaning for? What are we going to celebrate in three weeks? What are you groaning for, Christ the King? Your body, your earth, your paradise, your city, the place you were made to live forever, here, not there. Heaven's coming down. He went, we're going, but we're on a pilgrimage, we're looking for a city a city whose builder and maker, whose builder and architect is God that is coming down to us. So what's the paradox? The paradox is while we wait, not easy, while we wait, we advance. We do not hunker down. We don't give up. We invest in art, in science, in technology, in beauty, in nature, in keeping the world a good and pleasant place, making sure that everybody, Muslim, Buddhist, atheist, gay, lesbian, whatever, that everybody out there has clean water, that everybody out there is protected, that everybody out there is loved and accepted, Sin notwithstanding. I'm not saying it's okay to go sin. But when we look at our world, our world is waiting for us to go and bring the Gospel of the Kingdom. And it's not just about being saved and going to heaven. As great as that is, folks, the Gospel of the Kingdom means how in the world can I give my life, my little life, my few years, however long you have, how can I give that away? How can I invest that in the world around me? How can I spend and be spent like the Apostle Paul said? How do we push on? How do we continue? How do you do it? Living in this kind of a world that Elisha and Elijah lived in. Well, let me finish with this. The mockers the young boys who jeered and were judged said this, listen carefully, go up, 
Go up, you bald head. Go up, you bald head. What were they referring to? We don't really know. Some scholars think they were saying to Elisha, Go up the same way that last lousy prophet that caused us a drought for three years and no end of trouble and killed all our prophets, by the way, on Mount Carmel. Go up like him. Get out of here. Go away. Go up. Maybe not. Maybe it was something else. But those same mockers appeared again and stood around a cross and looked at God's head. Not just God's head, His real head. His exact image. His prosopon. His face. And they said, Come down. Come down. You saved others, but yourself you cannot save. Come down. Folks, if the gospel means anything, if it means anything at all, it means this. That because Jesus went up there on that cross, died for our sins, died for our shame, bore that kind of ridicule, that kind of mocking in His own body, in His own being, For us, for you, for me. If He did that for us, if He took away our shame, took away the fear of being mocked, removed the poison from the water, the life, water and life, Holy Spirit, they all mean the same thing. That's another sermon. Took all that poison into Himself, then we are free. There is no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus who walk not after the flesh, but after the Spirit. Spirit, the water of life. The thing that purifies us. He cleans us. He washes us. He redeems us. He restores us. He makes our life fruitful so that it's, an, a, ple- we're ple- it's a pleasant place to be in God's kingdom. And we can produce fruit. Will you trust Him? Will you give your life to Him? This man that took all our mockery and all our shame. Will you? I hope so. Let's pray. Father, uh, we love you and we thank you for your kindness and your mercy that endures forever. We're guilty of being mockers. We see ourselves around the cross at times mocking because we mock others. But Father, we also are those who have been mocked and hurt and shamed and broken. And I pray that you will heal that brokenness by the power of your Holy Spirit. Create in us a clean heart, O God. Renew a right spirit in us that we may proclaim Your glory now and forever. You are the Lord, King Jesus. Help us. Save us. Have mercy on us, O God. According to Your grace. Amen.